Welcome to Ears Wide Open, a short announcement before we begin the podcast. Since Bill and I recorded this podcast, Bill has been on an international tour with Enclosures and has come back to New Zealand. He is performing with an eight-piece improvisation orchestra in Dunedin and Oamaru this coming Armistice weekend. He will sing songs in English, many of them translated from the languages of our allies or enemies in the First World War. The songs will alternate with ensemble improvisations on war, peace, political violence and political progress. The evening begins with a song cycle co-written by Bill and New Zealand poet Alan Brunton based on the life of Michael Joseph Savage. Those dates are two nights in the New Athenaeum Theatre, the Octagon, Dunedin, Friday November the 9th and Saturday November the 10th at 8.30pm and one show on Armistice Day itself, Sunday, November 11th, at 4pm, in the Grain Store, Harbour Street, Oamaru. If you want those details again, look for Bill Doreen on Facebook, or Google Armistice Weekend Bill Doreen, and you will find them. Enjoy the show. The mouth is making unwanted sounds as it makes the words we instruct the mouth to make. It's always been this way. They are the sounds we expunge from voice recordings, if we can. Breaths and tongings that are too intimate for audio. Biological sounds happening around about our word sounds. Things like this. Hello and welcome to Ears Wide Open, a podcast that is a project of The Open Book, the world's most beautiful second-hand bookshop at 201 Ponsonby Road in Auckland. I'm Anna Livesey, and today I have the great pleasure of welcoming Bill Doreen to speak to us. Hello, Bill. Hello, Anna. Welcome. Thanks very much. Very nice to be here. Bill and some friends did an amazing performance at the Open Book last night with poetry and music and general um, word artiness coming out all over the place. It was fantastic. And Bill is going to read to us a little, and then we will have a conversation. Us. We are just there at the very beginning of the first word. The very first syllable is sounding to us, and time elastic, drawn out, wrecked in a sub, a barely audible growl. Growl, unlike itself, of a motorway of angular horizon, seen by a man on a mountain. Climb we down, reader, us, flat, who travel to the marauding, the mauling ocean. Ocean, we are already anchored in, of the beginning of no air, no breath, wordless, that leads always to our other beginning of being named, the never-remembered, called to the first sound in a time before we wake, called even as we sleep. First the name is ingrained, a sound you know as no one else knows it. You cannot reject it as yet, and even if you could, it would not be without calling yourself another. That's So that's from Enclosures 4, which is the book that we were celebrating and launching last night. And it's the fourth in a series of, as you said last night, a certain type of writing that keeps you sane. So tell ah. me a little bit more about <laughs> yeah. that. A certain kind of writing, and it keeps me sane, but I think probably all writing <laughs> keeps, uh, you, you know, enables, uh, <laughs> enables the mind and uh, sometimes clarifies the mind, but that's um, not always uh, material that people other than the writer can read, of course. Um, so I've 
tried to filter through my writings from notebook writings um, from the last 15 years and pick out sections uh, that I hope other people can read. These are from, you know, handwritten notebooks um, because I'm of the genera genera that generation. I do write by hand, um, but lately I've been uh, um, transcribing those notebooks to the computers. And so the Enclosures series started in 2008, is that right? That's more or less right, yeah. I think around about 2008. So I'd been 10 years in France and, well, I, I call it toing and froing. Apart from my very first departure from New Zealand in 1994, I think I was 30, or in my 30s anyway, late 30s, uh, when I lived in Berlin for nearly three years without returning to New Zealand. After that time, all of my time overseas was really toing and froing between New Zealand and France. A lot of kilometres in the air, you know, and, um, and, and time to think, time to write, and uh, cultural information coming to me, unexpected information that I guess I, I, I tried to process through these stories or musings or essays or songs or lyrics. Yeah. Essay, essay being one of my favourite literary words meaning, you know, to venture out or to try. Sure. And as I read Enclosures 4, and we commented last night that I should really have got hold of the whole series... Uh, well, um, you yeah. know the the sense of these being a little experiments, little little uh, mm -hmm. ventures out into the world, uh, essays in that sense was quite strong with me. What's the thread? Is there a narrative thread that ties them together? Well, if there is one, I think uh, the Enclosures series is really about repatriation, uh, and that the novels and novellas, uh, which I wrote before then are principally concerned with expatriation, if you like. Um, it's a, that's a keyhole that one can look through. I mean, um, the moment that you, you know, we, you know, talk, when writers talk about their own writing or, or anyone, you know, painters or musicians, I mean, it's never quite what it is, but... In some ways, one has said it as best one can. Yeah, so read I the mean, book. <laughs> well, I think it is about repatriation in a way. At the very beginning, there are some, there's still some utopic, uh, utopia, utopian fiction uh, in the enclosures one, but it's set in a stadium. At that time, there was some discussion in Dunedin about building a rugby stadium. And so, I mean, it's not without... Uh, Should have made the roof stronger. Yeah... Well, the stadium uh, turned a, it was a, is a biological uh, world, a discrete, completely hermetic uh, world in which people receive food. They don't know where they've come from, uh, uh, nor where they're going. And uh, this, the story follows the relationships. It's a kind of a it's a kind of an animal farm, if you like. You know, it's a, it's a or a, or a and uh, so I mean a, a lot of the utopian writing from before enclosures, going further back is concerned with no longer being in New Zealand and learning about other cultures and evaluating other cultures and evaluating 
other political systems and, you know, trying to understand people and, and to understand the place of a human being uh, among us others. Later on, I'm, I'm coming back and the enclosures evolves into distracted, sometimes, thoughts about a particular human being in a particular society that he's realised uh, that he uh, is inseparable from. Uh, okay, so namely and, me. Yes, I was going to say, is this particular human being it is. yourself? Well, that, that is, that is that, that's where it came from, from mm. that. But then, of course, the moment that you are writing, you know that uh, I becomes a, a, a character. So it's not autobiographical, strictly speaking, although in some of the earlier enclosures there are extracts which are pure diary. And so enclosures refers to you have taken these, these, these pieces and enclosed them in a book, but does it also refer to your realisation that you are sort of enclosed or embedded in this society? I probably wouldn't say that, no. Um, I think each piece of writing is a, is a kind of enclosure. You know, we try to make it a self-contained thing with a beginning, you know, and an ending and uh, some thematic content and uh, uh, might convey or be a vehicle for some philosophical notion. And that's really the enclosure. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're always, uh, you know, enclosed, um, but we're also always escaping, I think. I mean, it's like time. So no matter where we are or who we are. The, the things to do with expatriation or repatriation are really psychological, if you like. So I wouldn't go to the extent of, of making a, you know, a social claim for it. Um, these, these writings, which are essentially personal, may well have pertinence to other people because we are all somehow miraculously you know, alive until our cells give out and... Uh, or whatever happens, whatever is happening now as I age. But, yeah, um, hmm. good question, though. Well, it's interesting <laughs> to think about titles, isn't it? I think especially, you know, as a poet, I am always interested in what the title does to the content that's underneath it. Yeah, sure. You know, and how it reflects back off it and what yeah. it says. No, that's right. I mean, I was very interested in, in entering um, spaces that were... M mutative, mutative, if you like, or transformative. You know, in the first story, Jonah, uh, uh, picking on Jonah as the biblical character, enters uh, the belly of a whale, of course, off the coast of Capiti. The stadium is a closed space, you know. Uh, so there, there is some, some kind of conceptual a notion of the at those at that time when enclosures began, you could buy an enclosure to put your hard disk in if your laptop crapped out, right? So you know it seemed to have multiple uh, resonant. Exactly, Resonances. it was a useful yes. thing, but useful yes. is good. Yes. You, you know, useful is good actually. I think. Um, well, a writing is Socrates said, work, "What is good? It? Good is 
useful. (laughs) And so just to go back then to, you're talking about your earlier utopian fiction. Is this what other people might call speculative fiction or science fiction? I'm not actually sure what speculative fiction is. I Um, I was Googling you and I found you described as a writer of speculative fiction. Oh, that's interesting. But you don't don't know. Uh, We'll have to speculate. No, well, I'm not an academic. Thank thank God. (laughs) <laughs> oh, well, no, no, au, au contraire. <laughs> you wish you were? Uh, no, but I mean, I think uh, academics are good. <laughs> oh, so, oh, so do I, absolutely, yeah. so do I, but also it's a different path, right? Uh, yeah, sure, yeah, no, but yeah, I think science fiction... Mm, what does no. it do? What does it do for you to write something that is not based in the real? What is the joy well, I was and the expatriated. use of that? I was expatriated when I wrote because before the Enclosure series, there were also these science fiction s- stories. Um, and in a state of expatriation, I-, I was creating imaginary characters and setting them in imaginary worlds and reading fiction, uh, utopian fiction. So, you What know, were you reading? Oh, well, Thomas More is Utopia, for a start, kick-off. If kick you're off. after utopian if fiction, that's that, the place to start. You can't go further than the man who invented the name or the word. So, but he also, um, he had two names actually for Utopia. His other name was Nusquama, and which is the Latin for nowhere as well. So, but he chose Utopia finally. And so I took Nusquama as the title of one of my novels. Um, yeah. It's like, it means like Nowheresville, if mm-hmm. you like Nowheresville. Um, yeah, which is even earlier. That's actually set in New Zealand. That's that was my second novel. The first one was set in Berlin, and that was actually a pretty real story, but with plenty of experimental fiction in it. But experimental prose, I'm sorry, with plenty of experimental prose in it um, about a refugee from war to on Serbia in 1994. Um, uh, yeah, I hope I'm not going to lose the thread here. Where was I? Right. Um, what What does it offer you to write in non-real worlds? Right, non-real worlds. Well, yeah, so the first two were actually in real worlds. Mm. The first one was set in Berlin with the uh, refugee. Incidentally, that's just received Creative New Zealand funding to be translated into um, Serbian. And so they'll... I'll be going there, well, I may be going there next year for the launch of their translation series. So I guess in a country like like Serbia, you you know, you do a lot of translation, I suppose, um, and they're, they're particularly interested in this, uh, in this book. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, it is. Yeah, well, that's right. It came as a complete surprise to me because no one, no other, I lived in France for 20 years and no French organisation ever expressed any interest well, in uh, translating me. I'm sure the French feel they have quite enough literature without you, Bill. Oh, no, but they have been, they have shown great interest in certain New Zealand writers. You know, they've translated, um, oh, heaps of writers, uh, you know, writers and prose writers and poets. Um, but they're extremely uh, well known, you know, whereas I'm not known as a writer. Um, in fact, I probably did everything not to be known when I was in France. So, Tell me more but, about uh, that. But I have, I've done nothing to bring myself to the attention of the Serbian authorities <laughs> either. But, and so it was a complete surprise, you know, you know, complete and utter. So I'm going to take you back to the question again. 
of what what is the joy of writing in a non-real world? What are you hoping to get yeah. from that? Uh, yeah, joy. So you're assuming that there is joy in writing? Well, I'm assuming there's something that compels you. Yeah, no, what that's right. That I mean, it's you? just a word. I mean, I suppose the French might say jouissance, pleasure. Uh, Roland Barthes, the pleasure of writing. Maybe that's the joy. Yeah, joy is something, uh, is a kind of elation for me, I think, but I, that's not what I get from writing. So I wouldn't probably say that there is joy in that, if I use that, that sense. But as pleasure, I guess I can't deny that there is some pleasure, there is some satisfaction in writing. I think no writer would deny that. Uh, but the next step, like after every achievement, there is another need, there is another aim. You know, we have a government at the moment that's redressing the I, me, mine, you know, governments and education, more importantly, of the, of, you know, generations to I, me, mine. Okay, so now we're going, you know, hey, others. Um, but after that, there's going to be a need for further aims, uh, further achievements, further evaluation. I mean, it's the same with anything. Um, where was I? I think that was a great, that right. was a great, okay. you know, point about there's the moment of achievement and you put down the pen and out it goes into the world and then you think, right, heavens, I better figure out what I'm going to do next if I wish to keep claiming this title of maker of things. Well, you're assuming quite a lot there, though, Anna, I think, really, first of all... Well, that, I'm speaking uh, for myself. Oh, good <laughs> on you. Oh, well, that's good. I mean, you, I mean, your objectives are probably different from mine. Uh, my objectives in writing w were not initially to be published uh, beyond a small group of people. So I was working uh, in from a distance with um, a, an inchoate publishing enterprise called Titus Books. So he published the um, Brett uh, at uh, Titus uh, and I worked together on the on the first um, enclosures uh, I think and one before then as well. Uh, he was part of a, a network and I had a small network and really I think they were it's probably the only people I was writing for really when you say get them out there. So I, I don't know if I've ever approached a, a publisher with a book. I did once send one of my novels, the one set in Paris, which is again a, actually non-utopian, um, non-science fiction. It's a real story about a, an, a professor, a teacher of art history in Paris who loses his way one night with his friend in the Marais district. And his friend uh, ends up in hospital and actually dies after a knifing. His friend is gay and the teacher is a kind of incapable heterosexual uh, in love with the cellist who lives below him. Anyway, uh, where was I? What was the... Uh, I was you just telling saying, people because often they can't yeah. get these books. Right, you know, yeah. Mm. Yes, they're hard to get hold of. Yeah. What was the? We were, I was yeah, asking I, you about, should tell people that it is eight o'clock in yeah, the morning. Yeah, it is eight o'clock in the morning. That's right. <coughs> um, some of us with small children have been up since five, and yeah. are very awake, and others of us. 
Oh, actually, <laughs> I have been. I woke up rather fearful of what you were going to ask me. Oh, that's right. <laughs> about your, six. Your soul is on. <laughs> about the, six o'clock. Your soul is on the line. Mm. Well, let's talk about music. And of course, for a every then. I have children as well. Yeah. But, um, and so you know, when you have children, every second you they are actually in your thoughts, probably in one way or another. I just yes. throw that in. Yes. But um, it's so true. It's regardless so of how the relationships develop. Um, so what about music then? So you are known more for your music than for oh, your writing? Oh, definitely. No question at all. But, I mean, yeah, um, uh, that's, when I sing, I hope that oh, I'm, I'm, uh, someone is listening. In fact, I probably don't really sing to myself. I'm, I'm, I'm always communicating when I sing, but I mean, if I'm writing a song, I'm crafting a song. But if I'm, when I say sing, I can't actually sing that. It's more of a sort of, it's a, diff, it's a, it's a technique of, of speaking with some, some notes that uh, I can actually uh, reach and, you know. So, but yeah, if I present a song, if I give a song, then uh, someone, I want someone to receive someone it. Someone to pick it up. Like last night, yeah. where there was communication yeah. in the, and there, that's why the songs are always different. So some, uh, Musicians, you know, would prefer it if the song was just the same each time, but but they never are. They're all, it's always different. There's a new situation every time. I, I'm a, I, I think I described myself to to Simon Sweetman, who also interviewed me a few months ago, as a situationist with a small s. Mm-hmm. That each situation, you know, is potentially wondrous and um, ongoing, and um, yeah, just as every second is a kind of an escape from um, potential escape from an, uh, an enclosure, yeah, if you like. <laughs> and I was watching you last night playing um, and singing, and I noticed you, as you say, sometimes interacting with the audience and sometimes turning around to face the wall, face the piano that was behind you and bending, and I've thought, what's going on that you're showing with your body there? When you turn around, what's happening? Uh, well, that was when, um, was that when I was providing um, musical accompaniment? Correct. Yeah, so there was another person reading at that time. So Lisa Samuels um, presented a new work last night. It was the inauguration of, of, an, of yet another. She's so prolific, and every, every work... Uh, staggering um so i mean lisa had center stage but also i had to i was dealing with some technological issues actually quite old technology uh one of the first ever uh, multi fx units ever which i i've got two of that's that's all i use but, and even though i i should understand them after all these years uh, there were there were a few issues because i was using a tuning fork uh, to resonate the strings of the electric guitar to, above the pickups, and it was quite difficult. I had practiced this with the poems in my, you know, in perspective. But I was sitting down when I was rehearsing, and here I found myself standing up. You say I was bending. This is because I should have been sitting down, and so I was leaning over. It was very difficult to get the tuning fork, which you know you you hit the, uh, an old-fashioned, a real, real vibration in space, uh, you know, <laughs> object that makes noise or that generates noise. 
it was very difficult to get the, to get it just around the string and just above the pickup at the right moment, and also to give with the with the right degree of discretion to be accompanying Lisa's uh, very strong uh, poetic delivery. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. I thought, oh look, he's just in a little private moment of mm. grooving, but actually, you were thinking, so oh my god, how do I get this yeah. technology to work? Yes. Oh, but so that, that did lend a kind of concentration uh, to to what I was doing that that you found interesting, uh, I guess, yeah. It's funny, there are often different narratives going on and some of them are invented, yeah. Uh, most of them mm -mm. are invented when we're looking at other people. Definitely, yeah, that's right. And there, yeah, there you, some, sometimes things can go wrong and people become unfairly slandered or uh, stories can circulate that are just completely untrue. He said it's hard to be clear. Yeah, well, if it's necessary to be clear, then, to be clear, then, uh, yeah, you have a responsibility to, to present that clearly. Uh, I, 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 I didn't think that I was at that stage myself, but, yeah, and um, I'm, I'm now at a certain age where I think um, it's probably not relevant, but I can see that, you know, the emphasis on promotion that young creative people are encouraged to do is probably necessary to clarify their situation, their stance, let people know their education, what their values are. Values is the word of the week in New Zealand, uh, just for people who are tuning in from anywhere else. Um, yeah, the government has been waxing lyrical about values again, which is quite funny because the Green Party was originally called the Values Party. So your comment about being older now leads me on to my next question, which was if you look back at your young self uh, who was making kind of music and, and, and um, essays into the culture, what, did you, what would you say now, what do you know now that that young creative person didn't know then? What have you learnt over a lifetime of making work? Oh. Just the little questions for early in the morning. Yeah, well, that is quite a big one. I mean, what have I learnt? Yeah, I don't know. Um, uh, I mean, I think uh, expatriation for me was a kind of re-education, so there was a lot of learning going on, unexpected uh, impressions and having to learn an, a new language which I used for three years and then speaking that new language with the person that I uh, fell in love with uh, who didn't speak that language as a first language either because uh, she didn't speak any English so we were both speaking in a language that was not our own so the, I mean, and then moving to another culture, also again uh, surrounded by members of that culture, rather than having a, a, an expatriated community to move among, as lots of people do in London, uh, and as even in Berlin now, I think there is a little New Zealand community there, and in France I had nothing in common, particularly except perhaps with one uh, person later on, a New Zealander nothing in common with the other New Zealanders who were generally there for trade purposes and um, their aims, objectives and their idea of usefulness to society was quite different from mine. Uh, gee, what was the beginning of that again? 
<laughs> what, what you've learnt over a lifetime I, of making I, I, work. I used to, I guess this is, uh, yeah, I'm sort of losing the thread, gee, I better, you know, I better order that, Have what do they call it? The, the walkers? The walker. I, th- I think you'll be all right for a wee while yet. <laughs> Very nice, thank you. So tell us then what you were doing uh, in France. You were led there by love. Am I picking that up right? No, that's correct. No, well, uh, no. Uh, <laughs> love came to me uh, in Germany, but um, at one at a certain stage, it became economically um, and uh, politically difficult because I didn't actually have the right to be there. So um, officially. Uh, I could have probably done some administrative work to, to rectify that situation because uh, my grandfather was born in Glasgow, so a UK uh, entry and so on and uh, so on. You know, but it would have been a lot of work. and um, Yeah, so I was kind of like a refugee, or at least not a refugee, but I, I had something in common with refugees, so I could, you know, I could feel what they were, something a little bit about what they were feeling. Um, but then the move to France was a, um, a, a, an invitation to go because there was a, a, a flat big enough, and um, but then it, that meant really going back to my schoolboy French or university French and um, and developing a way of speaking again, another way of speaking in a new language. Uh, surrounded by French people and really uh, trying to in- insert myself, as they say in French, into French society um, by means uh, the usefulness that I tried was teaching English, of course, which lots of uh, Kiwis overseas do in any country, Asian countries, European countries. I couldn't find a usefulness beyond that, although I applied for some some jobs, but... Um, the the main usefulness I, I could see was in the English language, and also in the tradition of of English song, you might say, rather than experimental music, which I also love. But I just felt that the word content of songs themselves um, had some might have some usefulness to particularly New Zealand society um, and perhaps other countries as well. But yeah, so this brought me back to English, really. Mm. So, and back to New Zealand. And did your love from Berlin come with you? Uh, she did, she did. But she had also to and froed with me uh, a little Although we have also had some times of separation, so we're a couple who are able to be separated for short times. Or, Which is a useful resilience. Yeah, in fact, this is now a problem really for her. In a way, I think she's also feeling, uh, much as I did in, in, I almost said England, in, um, in France. And, uh, yeah, it's an ongoing thing for anyone living, I think, in another country. Unhomed. Um, yeah, what is home? But yeah, where where does your usefulness lie? You know what? Um, hmm. And where do you locate your usefulness these days, Bill? Well, people are beginning to express enjoyment. If you want, we were talking about joy. You know, their own um, 
they're getting something out of uh, my music and something out of the writing sometimes and something out of the writing sometimes so I mean that's uh, enough for me I think that's a fantastic place to end it's been a really interesting conversation would you read us another little sure. another little enclosure Okay, this is from the piece called Manima and Minima with uh, an epigraph from Antonin Artaud. For it is the anatomical logic of modern man to never have been able to live nor think of living except as one possessed. The mouth is making unwanted sounds as it makes the words we instruct the mouth to make. It's always been this way. They are the sounds we expunge from voice recordings, if we can. Breaths and tongings that are too intimate for audio. Biological sounds happening around about our word sounds. Things like this. They belong to your voice and mine. Manima is not really speaking. His voice, featured, is dispossessed of himself. Manima has no glottal defects. No unique sinuses or membranes, no obstructive saliva and uniquely arranged teeth, no individual ridges and palates. And with this voice, Manima can say all things. He can say one thing at its opposite. He can say he was mistaken, that he meant to say something else. He can go backwards and skip over details. He can slip forwards into a future that can never be. He can mean anything. He can get elected and run a country. Some singers hate their voices. Is this because the own voice is ill-suited to performance, or is it because the recorded voice is just too unlike the biological voice, the one the speaker has heard all his life or her life? Is it because the recorded voice sounds too capable of saying something, anything, that will please the listener? Mm. Thank you, Bill. Okay. That was fantastic. This has been Ears Wide Open, a production of The Open Book, the world's most beautiful second-hand bookshop at 201 Ponsonby Road in Auckland. I've been speaking to Bill Doreen. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. And it was so amazing to have you perform last night. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me and us. I was performing with, uh, with Steve Cornane and Lisa Samuels. Steve Cornane on percussion. It was fantastic. If you're in Auckland, come down and see us. Go to our Facebook page to find out about other events. If you are not in Auckland, you can go to our website and order our book bag service, which comes to you once a month or once every two months. Books selected to your liking. Mm-hmm.